0: You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm David Manty, and welcome to the third episode of the Today in Manufacturing Podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We're editors for Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, and each have about 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. On today's podcast, we cover the five biggest stories in manufacturing and the implications they have on the industry moving forward. First, a little bit of housekeeping. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. And to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. And please send us notes, not pitches. We get plenty of those. How are you guys doing today? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing all right. Anna?
0: Good. Let's stop with the housekeeping. Let's trash this hotel room.
1: Nice. I miss hotels. (laughs) (laughs) Trashed or not, it's been so long since I've smeared buffalo sauce on a sheet. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) let's jump right into things. Our first story this week is why the power grid failed in Texas and beyond. The story is Texas has been hit with a cold snap, and a lack of preparation has left more than 3 million Texans vulnerable after losing power. Basically, it got cold in Texas. Not historically, but cold, and residents turned up their heaters, including inefficient electric units. Demand spiked to levels on par with the hottest summer days, but the state didn't have the capacity to keep up. The state can generate about 67,000 megawatts in the winter. In the summer, it's about 86,000 megawatts. Typically, these power plants go offline for maintenance during months when demand dips and the state relies on natural gas and wind power. But the temps in Texas froze natural gas supply lines and and stopped wind turbines from spinning. As of Wednesday, about 46,000 megawatts of power were still offline statewide. Anna, your take on the story.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, we've been seeing lots of takes on this story. It's like a very convoluted and complicated situation that is making a lot of people look bad. Um, I guess I didn't realize this until the ensuing coverage, but this actually happened once before and not that long ago which, you know, Texans probably remember this, but maybe nobody else does. In 2011, um, Texas experienced what the Houston Chronicle calls a, quote, near identical scenario where a plunge in temperatures left 3 million people without power. And then at that time, the feds actually got involved and wrote a report warning ERCOT, which is the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, that the state's power gen plants were not winterized in an adequate way to protect against this kind of freeze. And the report offered some guidelines on how to help prevent this in the future. But instead of mandating it, Texas regulators left it up to the power companies to either implement it or not. And the 2011 report actually cited the issuance of some of those same warnings after a similar event had occurred 22 years before that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... This is probably what's making the blood boil of people, um, people like Ed Hers, who's an energy fellow at the University of Houston, who basically emphatically rejected the position of ERCOT, which was that this was unforeseeable. He called that nonsense. He called it not a surprise. Mm-hmm. So the big question is, does Texas learn from this? At this point, with climate change creating more risk in weather patterns, they may not have the luxury of kicking the can down the road on forcing these types of upgrades um, as this kind of weather event could come much more frequently than like once every 10 or 20 years.
1: Right. We're already past the fool me once part of this. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, You know, to your point, these gas fired plants and winter wind turbines can be winterized, you know, and that 2011 reports, they were advised on those changes, but they were voluntary and expensive. And I think it's also important to note that they did do some of those upgrades to the plants but, and then they prevented a similar incident in 2018, but the weather this year was still much more extreme. Uh, Jeff, what were you thinking on the story? I mean, we remember 2011 because the Packers were actually
2: in the Super Bowl down there. had oh, you know, the man. ice storms and right, stuff. Right, yeah. But, um, <laughs> when you first see the news coming out of Texas, it was kind of heartbreaking to see these people's homes just devastated by pipes bursting and things like that. And as I looked more into this, I just got more and more frustrated and upset mm-hmm. because- Infrastructure appears to be one of those things that people like to talk about to get elected, but then actually doing it doesn't seem to help them get reelected. So mm-hmm. they don't do it. Same thing, You know, we, we mentioned that all of these recommendations were made in 2011 when this happened the first time, and it's happened again. This is infrastructure investment, and this comes down to state, uh, excuse me, city, county, state officials doing their jobs to take care of people. Texas, as a GDP is the 10th largest country in the world. Mm-hmm. There's This isn't a, a typhoon hitting Bangladesh here. There is financial resources, there's engineering resources in place to make sure these things don't happen. And it's up to these local officials to do this. Mm-hmm. Infrastructure is one of those things in the US where the whole system is broken. Our way of fixing things needs to be fixed mm-hmm. because we're relying on local municipal municipalities to do the right thing. They go to the federal government for funds And if we use President Trump's $1 trillion infrastructure and reinvestment act of a couple years ago, all of these municipalities stopped even trying to put in applications for grants because they were getting kicked back. Mm -hmm. Now, whether it's real or perceived that this was due to political reasons or whatever, it doesn't matter. You don't stop because something gets hard or it doesn't work. Again, this is Texas Mm -hmm. and we don't have people able to get clean water. Mm -hmm. This is ridiculous to me. The fact that there's always a reactive dynamic to these types of infrastructure breakdowns is ridiculous. And I hate to be that guy who's just like, this is wrong, we need to fix it without a solution. But the solution is there, we just need to work harder at it. Mm -hmm. The money's there. As opposed to taxing FEMA to come in and fix everything, let's be proactive. We harp at our readers
1: about preventative maintenance in their facilities. Yeah. Come on. Because it has a direct impact on their bottom line, whereas these guys are just, you know... They just want to be more, most popular in the next term. Wow. Um, and it also reminds me of the cybersecurity story that we did about the water plants uh, last week just in terms of this Band-Aid approach and kind of, uh, you know, well, sucks to be in Texas, but uh, Wisconsin's fine right now. So it kind of like removes you from actually the greater issue of infrastructure, you know, well, failings.
2: And one final thing here, I just did a little bit of research. As a percentage of our GDP, the U.S. spends about 2.3% on infrastructure improvements annually. Mm-hmm. That's less than half of what they do in Europe. Mm-hmm. Those countries have a tenth of our GDP, and they're spending twice as much on improving their infrastructure.
1: Yeah, I it's mean, going to be better. I would like to add that it's going to take more than regulatory changes as well, but it could also, you know, a couple of community changes could have helped uh, sort of lessen the blow in this in particular situation. Uh, the problem stems stems, you know, from some anecdotal stories that I've heard uh, coming out of the incident, which is once the power went down, some of these residents were cranking their thermostats up to like eighty degrees so they could get as much heat as possible when the power came back on, which caused much more demand in the grid and everything to crumble as soon as it popped back online. Uh, You know, is it too much, kind of to your point, like, uh, is it too much of a pie in the sky sort of thought to think, A, we can do this on a regulatory level? And do you think it's too pie in the sky to think that a community can come together and just say, hey, if everyone keeps it at 60 and turns off their appliances, we shouldn't make it.
0: Oh I think I think that that's reasonable to ask I think that it wasn't clear to anyone I think these you know these residents they didn't know they didn't know that uh, you know I, my guess is they they were not planning to break the power grid mm-hmm. with their actions you know um and that's to, to Jeff's point like these are some really basic things like to establish those kind of best practices and make sure that they are communicated to the communities and well-written and easy to understand. So people know. I mean, we've, uh, you know, look back to like the World War II and there was all kinds of rationing of things and people like pulled together and, you know, did drives for (laughs) whatever type of product that was needed. I mean, people can do this and they will do this. I just, um, I don't think anybody knew what to do. That's my take, but...
2: Well, and I think the mismanagement goes even further. I'm just going to keep bashing these guys because it really pissed me <laughs> off, to be honest. I mean, yeah. it's, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's people on the news talking about paying $1,500 a day to run their electricity and and try to run some heat into their homes. Mm-hmm. What is that? I, Again, this is Texas, man.
1: Yeah, mean, that's energy
2: independence. That's what that is. That's, um, that's mismanagement at its highest level.
1: Yeah, it's extremely frustrating. And uh, our thoughts are definitely with the people in Texas, hoping that things get sorted out soon. Um, all right, our fourth most popular story this week was actually a really cool story, uh, f- a first look at the new Air Force One Flying Fortress. Uh, it's a cool opportunity. This week, uh, the National Geographic Channel actually reached out to Jeff and offered a unique opportunity. a sneak peek, a sneak peek at the show, the new Air Force One: Flying Fortress. The program offers a brief history on the Air Force One fleet before del- delving into the process of replacing the pair of 30-year-old jets currently serving the country the president, and his staff. While the $5 billion price tag had skeptics, including Jeff, you know, <laughs> the show provided a look at the 30-year-old tech currently in service, and uh, it definitely seems like it was time for an upgrade. Uh, Jeff, a little bit about this, uh, the program and the... So yeah
2: I mean I know for you and Anna to stay up till nine o'clock with little kids is is a daunting <laughs> ask, but it was it was worth it if you had a chance i mean it was kind of a quick hour in terms of a program. I really enjoyed it anyway, but um, I think the biggest takeaways for me i was i'm always skeptical of government spending okay mm-hmm. uh, I'll be real open about that but when you when you come in and you see these four guys cramped into like um i don't know and a size uh similar to like an office cubicle trying to fly the plane for the leader of the most powerful country in the world. It's a bit disconcerting, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as the analog gauges that were on the wall and a lot of the uh, 1990s-esque wood paneling and stuff throughout. So, I mean, just from the aesthetics alone, you could definitely see it was time for an upgrade. There was also some really interesting stories in the program. Um, You know, uh, President Bush after 9-11 not being able to connect with people because of the limited communications um, technology on board Air Force One at the time. Uh, Some of the other things, too, that they talked about, um, potential weapon systems and all that. It It was a really interesting look, as well as just in the facility when they retrofitted these planes. Yeah. Where they basically had to figure out a way to take the weight off so they could do some work. But without bending, because it's you know it's a three hundred fifty thousand pound fuselage. Yeah. So the engineering involved was, it just it was really cool to see these folks do this.
1: Mm-hmm. I got to say, I didn't get a chance to see it because you sent over the preview link, yeah. and uh, it had expired. And not only did it expire, it like gave me this sassy <laughs> message that's like, "Looks like you took too long." And I'm like, "Man, it was a recommendation." <laughs> so I haven't seen it yet, um, but we're looking for it on are many apps that we have yeah. on our smart tv one of them's got to have it uh anna your thoughts on air force one
0: you got sassed by nat geo how does that feel
1: i it felt so it felt like a reprimand from a teacher <laughs> just like <laughs> put on your dunce cap sir sit in the
0: corner david
1: yeah that's such a thing that You're i had attention for being late they mm-hmm. wrote your
0: name in on the what? chalkboard in the corner and the, under the thing that says do not erase i
1: mean if there's <laughs> one thing i'm gonna take heat on it's Typically punctuality and tardiness, so I'll. Well, I that. think this goes back to the um, the geography issues that we had in the first episode. Yeah, yeah. a lot oh, of was, baggage is Air Force yeah. um,
0: with elementary school. I think
1: is Air Force One. <laughs> uh, was Air Force One worked on in Spokane, Washington? <laughs> it was not. Okay, okay. Not. Uh, Anna, um, any major issues that you saw with Air Force One? Air Force One. You know, we did a lot of coverage with um, you know Trump's sort of negotiations early on and uh, his in his administration.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly like um I think like so much has happened in the Trump presidency including but not limited to obviously the COVID-19 pandemic that it's almost hard to remember that the cost of Air Force 1 was a big point of contention at the beginning of his term. Um and he was very firm in his belief that the cost of Air Force 1 was way too high and 5 billion dollars does sound like A lot, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I think Jeff is on target when he points out that there's a lot of bells and whistles required here that don't, you know, you're not really thinking about, including that massive 350,000 pound fuselage that I think is that big because it needs to be able to like, they need to be able to stay in the air for like an indefinite amount of time. And that actually like that can be refueled um, with an aerial tanker, but I think it goes like 14 or something hours before Mm -hmm. then. Which is crazy.
2: Yeah, I didn't see the time. It's like eighty-eight hundred miles. The new wow. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay.
0: But you know, on uh, I, I, like on the other hand, like some of the non-standard features that they have on Air Force One, um, including include the ability to withstand an electromagnetic pulse caused by a nuclear explosion, which I don't think they're like applying that to a standard aircraft. So I'm guessing that that's not cheap, but I don't know the numbers on that. Okay. Um, but I do know that we got um, a decent deal on the planes themselves uh, before the retrofitting started. And that's essentially because a now bankrupt Russian airline called TransAero <laughs> had ordered four seven four seven eights from Boeing back in 2013, but they never paid for them. So Boeing built the first two and then they sort of cut their losses and wrapped the engines until they could find a buyer, which put the Air Force in a good position to negotiate. So they got like liquidation prices on whatever like on an airplane i don't know what right (laughs) whatever that is on an airplane like deals deals right always
1: looking for a bargain even for the president right um so i I noted that in august 2019 the air force uh the air force ones were said to cost about 5.2 billion like we've talked about about 2 billion more than the estimates from 2016 uh boeing now was Will reportedly be paid $3.9 billion to build the jets, and the additional $1.3 billion is going to new hangars and other infrastructure costs. So, one of the things I was curious about is did we actually make a deal, or did we just stop talking about the $1.3 million that we put into (laughs) infrastructure costs and hangars? Just like, and the other thing was, uh, you know, at the time, President Trump said that he, quote, Added things, and uh, you know, so the base sticker price for the two seven four seven eight hundred aircraft would be around seven hundred million dollars each, right? So that's about one point four million. So I was wondering, Jeff, did you see two point five billion in bells and whistles in there? Well, a million feet of new cabling.
2: Um, Potentially, and they, they this was hypothetical, and they talked about some of the other defense systems, like you know the shielding for the nuclear blast. That's that's real. Yeah. But they also talked about missile defense systems being embedded within Air Force One. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, if if Air Force One truly can shoot lasers out to, to take out incoming missiles, <laughs> yeah, I think that's where a lot of it came from.
1: Oh, very good. You know, um, one thing that I also want to add is uh, a story that we covered um, recently about uh, Hermes. And, uh, or Hermes. Uh, basically, they're the company that won a contract in August this year to build a hypersonic Air Force One. And they've designed an engine capable of boosting the presidential jet to Mach 5. That's about 3,300 miles per hour, or five times the speed of sound. Now, the transatlantic trips with this new jet would take less than two hours. And they're going to have a demonstrator aircraft in five years, an actual plane in ten. So, ten billion? <laughs>
0: <No>.
1: <laughs> Still less than a
2: trip uh you know to the International Space Station. So
0: let's start charging Biden for the snack box. Maybe we can recoup some of our costs that, that way.
1: Right. To use the blankets and pillow. Um, <laughs> all right, on to our third story after addressing the huge, incredible construction sound from the room behind us. If you can hear that, sorry, there's nothing we can do. <laughs> <laughs> We spoke to them. They are unkind people.
0: They are building a model train back there with um, tack hammers, I yeah. think.
1: They essentially said, we're, uh, we're building a new suite for the second biggest company in Madison, maybe the largest company in Madison. So just no. No. Just a general <laughs> no. Um, the third, uh, third most popular story this week is Volkswagen, a victim in EV battery spats. Two years ago, Volkswagen put up 80 800 800 million to expand one US plant to produce electric vehicles. Now, a trade dispute is making things complicated. LG Energy Solutions said that fellow Korean competitor SK Innovation poached dozens of employees and stole trade secrets. A judge agreed that <clears throat> a judge agreed and SK was banned from importing, making or selling batteries in the US for 10 years. The problem is that SK has a $2.6 billion factory currently under construction in Georgia, and those batteries were earmarked for EVs from Ford and Volkswagen. The U.S. International Trade Commission upheld the decision, but with a four-year exemption for Ford and only a two-year exemption for VW. VW says that it is an unintended victim and hopes to at least get get the same four years that Ford received. Anna, does VW deserve four years?
0: Well, I think if we want to support Volkswagen's <clears throat> efforts, then yes. I mean, so it's they call themselves a victim, and it sounds like sour grapes. But actually, this is um, this is a big deal for Volkswagen. Like, they're arguably one of the automakers that's had a bit of an advantage when it comes to electric vehicles. They tripled their EV sales in 2020. They launched nine new electric and plug-in models at the same time. And... Motor Authority pointed out earlier this year that Volkswagen sold about half the number of EVs that Tesla did in 2020 and that VW could, in fact, actually overtake Tesla in sales as soon as this year. So, you know, it might look like another spat between a supplier and a customer, but um, this battery plant is actually a pretty big deal for Volkswagen and they are pressing the gas on electrics, which is not the illustration I should have used they're plugging in the electric extra hard into the outlet and I my my point being that you know VW has a ton of money wrapped up in electric vehicle development 86 billion dollars at last word over the next five years and so losing a battery supplier and one that would supply their only U.S. EV plant would be a massive setback for them and as VW has said Two years isn't enough to fix this problem, especially when there is a demand on both the raw materials involved and the finished product that comes with basically every automaker in the world making a run for electric at the exact same time and leaning heavily on the supply chain for those batteries.
1: Jeff, it sounds like, uh, you know, another week we're talking EVs and supply chain <laughs> problems. Uh, where do you stand?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Give them more time. I I don't buy into the fact that they couldn't get something in place within two years, but I I don't have a problem with that, primarily because it's not just about Volkswagen's supply chain. It's not just about their product offerings and getting stuff to market. It's about this plant in Tennessee that is primarily focused on producing electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at all of those jobs and that facility and all the the effect they would have on the community, even at larger, that's where my concern would go. I don't don't want somebody in Tennessee to be – penalized because of uh, somebody in China doing something wrong uh, um, Korea Korea excuse me yeah um, so I think that's that's part of it but I think it's also a lesson that we continue to learn I mean a lot of it's been pandemic focused but just in supply chain visibility and diversity coming out of the last recession we worked with a lot of metal shops um, metal yeah. fabricators and they were absolutely done in by the fact that they were so reliant upon the automotive sector as their only uh, customer in a lot of cases. They had to diversify. They had to go different areas. And I know we're talking about a different type of product here. It's, it's a battery for an electric car. Yeah. But I still think for Volkswagen, this has to be a lesson learned in terms of diversifying, even pumping some money into some of these other suppliers, similar to Tesla and what they've done with Panasonic and another supplier as well overseas. Um, so I think it's also a heads up at large. I mean, something like this can hopefully be kind of a... Uh, a, case, uh, a case study for other automakers in terms of making sure there's other folks out there capable of supplying this, uh, this vital component.
1: Yeah, you talk about the plants, about a thousand jobs on the line, you know, uh, to make VW's ID4, uh, the electric subcom- or the electric compact SUV with a just terrible name in Tennessee. Uh, you know, and VW and Ford want LG and SK to resolve their dispute out of court so that the battery supply chain doesn't take a hit. Uh do you guys think that's, you know, wishful thinking that, you know, they could figure out an agreement where SK could just license the technology? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, because we all want to share. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, everybody likes to share stuff. Right. It's a
0: hot commodity right now, so they're competitive.
1: Well, the other thing is that Georgia, you know, where SK's plant is, wants President Biden to step in and reverse the decision because another 2,600 jobs are on the line at SK's plant. Now- I mean, I remain skeptical of any sort of these, like, job promises because I have family, my mother-in-law in particular, that lives just down the road from the Foxconn campus in Madison, also known as the ghost town where people get paid to do nothing. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just – so I'm skeptical, but at the same time, you know, you like to see these kind of – these states taking big swings, and you want to try and make sure that everything is working so that way, you know, I guess it could have an amicable result for everybody.
2: Well, and, and do I to don't know – the specifics around all of the employee poaching and the IP theft, right. stuff like that. But on the basis of just that, look, you can't get away with doing something wrong, okay? The, the court actually found that they were guilty of doing this, levied a, an appropriate sentence on them. So you can't just sweep that under the rug. True. But at the same time, there does need to be, I don't know if it's those two working together, or again, if it's the automakers looking at the supply chain and seeing we need to also – Pump up some other potential suppliers. Okay, yeah, maybe it's some conventional battery makers and helping them retrofit to produce batteries for EVs, things like that. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of space in terms of industrial space out there. There's a lot of engineering prowess out there mm-hmm. when it comes to electric vehicles. So following more of a Tesla model as opposed to some of the things that we've tried in the past from an automotive perspective, I think is a better route. Yeah. You can't force people to work together, and I don't think more government intervention is going to make something flow more smoothly.
1: No, that's a good point. That's a good point. You can't just expect them to come in and be like, play nice now. You're mm-hmm. fine. Great. Right? Uh, our second most popular story is about a man of mystery. As new details emerge on the jetpack mystery man. Last August, pilots started seeing what appeared to be a man strapped to a jetpack speeding through the sky. Through the the sky. Apparently that's the noise that I make now. (laughs) It was interesting, but the unidentified flying objects legitimately threatened incoming jets above LAX. Some thought that it was a stunt or misunderstanding, but the FBI launched an investigation and the craft was spotted again in October. And in December, a pilot on a training flight finally caught it on video. According to declassified government documents, the, quote, jetpack man might not actually be a man at all. Instead, we might be seeing... A life-size mannequin that's being jetted around the heavens by a drone. Anna, what are we looking at here?
0: <laughs> First of all, did you guys see any of this footage of uh, that was captured of the oh, jetpack? Yeah, I, I mean,
1: to me, it's straight up Bigfoot Loch Ness monster footage. Where it's like, I mean, maybe it's something. I it's so creepy. It like, is creepy. Yeah.
0: it creeped me out big time. And I mean. L- Mannequins are creepy. We (laughs) can all agree on that, I think. Yeah. Uh, Like, what is going on there? But I don't know. For me, like, when we thought this was a person, um, people – because this was kind of going on for months before this mannequin theory emerged. But people were really concerned that, like, a rational individual who had this kind of scientific brain – um, you know, to pull this off would be so careless as to come so close to a flight path like they did over LAX. Mm-hmm. But even now that the human on a jetpack theory has been probably debunked, are we not concerned anymore? Because now we know, or we think we know that this is some amateur piloting a drone who took it over LAX and elsewhere, like repeatedly getting dangerously close to commercial airplanes. So I, you know, we talk a lot about the business case for drones but the f a a and law enforcement as well are facing new challenges <clears throat> with their proliferation because they're so easy to get, and they kind of open the door for criminal use or in this case maybe careless use but mm. they're having you know they're having to come up with ways to police these crafts, like using um a kind of like drone forensics, which is when you retrieve digital data from a drone that's been recovered but as we're well aware, Jetpack Man is still on the lam. Um, yeah, probably hiding in plain sight in one of many department store windows. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so I, if there's no drone to recover, then like, what? How do you address these types of cases? Because the reality is, like, you know, it's felt like kind of a fluff story on on the surface, but it really does raise some serious questions about the ability for these kind of drones to be tracked. Um, And if our sophistication at this time is enough to prevent some serious misuse of the technology. And I think it's clear that we're not really there
1: yet. No, that was, you know, that was a point that was echoed by a lot of readers. There was one reader in particular, uh, his name was David, who wrote to me to say, I was disappointed with the humor at the end of your story because of the threat to human life that this jetpack man posed when flying near LAX and other areas of high altitudes. Should the object hit an aircraft or be sucked into an engine... It could very become a very serious accident. Making this into a light story only encourages this unlawful and dangerous behavior by people looking to get publicity and undermines the rules and regulations that we have in place. Oof. And to David, I just want to say, it was just a mannequin pun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, it was. Uh, but to that point, to actually talk about it seriously, Jeff, uh, this is an inherent danger that comes with more flying objects in the sky. Yeah, I mean, we touched on this a little bit last week. When we were talking about the uh, the, the taxis like yeah. to
2: the airport and stuff like that, the flying cars. So, yeah, it, it's exciting on one hand to see this technology evolving to a, maybe an individual level. I mean, the first thought that I had when I saw this was that scene out of the first Iron Man movie where he's cruising yep. around and they're trying to figure out what he is and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, to, to echo all of Anna's concerns from a safety perspective, it is alarming, especially over a major metropolitan area um especially if this technology is that easily accessible um is provided it's not Elon Musk uh, launching another company or something right um yeah it's it's i don't want to float any more conspiracy theories out there in terms of what this individual was doing or what this jetpack was but again the FAA even maybe some sort of um radar tracking capability specifically designed for these types of, the size of these types of objects would help just police them a little bit more and being able to understand where they're coming from, where they're landing, all that kind of
1: thing. Well, and I think part of that is that the drone technology came first and now we're getting tracking and, you know, other technology that can kind of get these drones out of the sky without necessarily firing projectiles at them, but it's still just not there. Where like uh, there was the, uh, the one sort of, cannon that recovered that will shoot it down by basically cutting all communications to right. it. And then it will yeah. drop out of the sky, but it's still just not there yet. Well, and if there, if heaven forbid, there's an actual person attached to this, I mean, that isn't probably the best approach. Well, on the topic of a person being attached to it, uh, I think this has to be a mannequin on a drone because if you think of the inventor, Richard Browning from gravity industries, he's the guy that created that data jet suit. Um, which drew Iron Man comparisons, you know, long after the Stark Envy had kind of faded. Uh, the jet suit has five gas turbine engines, two mounted on each arm on, and one on the back. It has five kerosene-fueled turbine engines and produces more than 1,000 horsepower. Now, this beautiful, sophisticated jetpack still only flies for four minutes. And for a guy that's been flying this thing for years... It still looks pretty touch and go when he's up there. Mm -hmm. You know, like there have been plenty of times when I've tried to I've seen him try and land, you know, on the stand before the people and he just doesn't make it. Um, Not, I mean, he just falls. (laughs) But this thing can fly up to 12,000 feet. So it is possible that Jetpack man sightings, which were seen at 3,000 and 6,000 feet respectively, is possible. But again, my point on the Bigfoot footage, the pilot. I mean, A, on the Instagram post or whatever social media was, put the text right over where the flight path of this object. And it's just like, it's kind of like, oh, there's Bigfoot. And all of a sudden, I'm really shaky. You know, (laughs) (laughs) this is the Loch Ness Monster. And it's just like, you know, oh, even though I have a state-of-the-art camera in my pocket, it's so out of focus. Um, Anyway, I just, it is possible. But given some of the people that have tried to make jetpacks in the past and seeing how they work, I just don't think that's a person up there. Yeah, I man. think
0: they have a propensity for like exploding also. So, yeah, whoever this, if this was a person, they would be an interesting person to, right. <laughs> to try yeah. this. Yeah. If it is
1: a person, I owe you an apology.
2: <laughs> well, the thing that was kind of unique is look, whatever the footage was, real or not, I mean, there was controlled movement. Yeah. Which is now what you've seen in some of these other sort of um inventions or, or whatever. I mean, it was that that individual was moving and they definitely had a direction that they wanted to go in and were able to maintain that. So if that's actually real, I mean that's pretty innovative um
1: yeah. for this, but also again, super scary. It definitely had to be the like straight line UAV, not a quad crop copter or anything like that. Yeah. Um okay, finally, the uh most popular story on our Sites this week, which is just not surprising, (laughs) is the story, uh, Jeff, you wrote this week about Russia making shotguns for hipsters. And it wasn't just shotguns. Uh, State-owned military supplier, Rostec, is reportedly building a combat suit capable of stopping 50 caliber bullets. The rounds are typically fired by an M2 automatic machine gun that is on a tripod or vehicle mounted. The five-inch bullets are the one thing that most high-end bulletproof armor still can't stop but Rostec's Centurion armor will be able to withstand a direct shot, reportedly. The same week, Kalishnikov, the maker of the AK-47, is said it is making a gadget gun for hipsters. It's a semi-automatic 12-gauge shotgun with a compass, a video camera, and computerized firing instructions. It doesn't say whether or not it pairs with social media. The MP-155 Ultima will cost around the equivalent of about $1,300. Uh... And I want to say, reader, email in the podcast, Douglas wrote, I will be so disappointed if the Russian body armor doesn't make the broadcast next week. So, Douglas, this is for you. Jeff, what do you got for Doug?
2: <laughs> well, starting with the, the body armor. I was going to bring this in because I still have one from my training days in the Army. But a 50 caliber round, basically, if you go from the, the base of the palm of your hand mm-hmm. to the tip of your longest finger, that's a 50 cal round. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So think about that being deflected by body armor. Yeah. Okay. I mean, unless, uh, you know, know, Rostec has like a Wakandan uh, mine of vibranium, (laughs) they're making a bunch of superhero shields like Captain America's or something. I don't really see this, which is why pretty much everybody in the defense field just kind of rolled their eyes at this one. Like, no, you're not stopping a 50 cal bullet. It's it's just not going to happen. So that was interesting. But this is sort of the Russian military's thing. Like, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but they throw out enough of these crazy ideas where you're like, if you, you can't not believe them, because yeah. if you start doing that, then they're going to surprise you. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of pay attention to it, but you don't want to totally buy in until you see something. So that one seems kind of out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we look at, at Kalishnikov and making this, I can't believe they would call it a 12-gauge shotgun, a gadget gun, but mm-hmm. that is their term. So um, Yeah, that's, something for the kids. That's That's their call. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, on one hand... <clears throat> If you look at it from a business perspective, what they're doing is they're saying, okay, look, we think we've basically got our guns with everybody who knows how to fire one. Here's a market that we haven't tapped into, the people mm-hmm. who don't know how to shoot a gun. So we'll put all these gadgets on there, this computerized stuff that'll make it more appealing to them. So, I mean, okay, that's that's interesting. You're going for an untapped market and you are trying to actually show them how to safely use the firearm as opposed to just giving it to them like a new toy. So... Again, it's just like such a Russian way of putting something like that out there. Like, mm-hmm. hey, it's fun. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. Take a shotgun. Everybody we go. It.
1: Yeah. Relax. Um, regarding that body armor, uh, I, I want to echo your point. Like, Could a person actually withstand that shot? Because according to one of our readers, that actually goes by the name Straight Shooter on the sites. Thanks, Mark. Uh, his, he has a ballistic table that says a fifty caliber Browning machine gun firing a 750-gram projectile, which hit, will hit you. At 2,820 feet per second. Now, that is an quite an impulse to absorb. Well, yeah. And I mean, from my personal experience in shooting one, it's not a trigger.
2: Yeah. it's You sit behind it. Yeah. And you've got two forks that you hold on to and you push it down with two of your thumbs. That's, and that's how you fire things. I mean, it's fun. It's pretty amazing. But, <laughs> I mean, it's stupid powerful. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's mounted on a Humvee or a self-propelled howitzer like I learned on. So, yeah, this is... <laughs> It's gonna like deflect a fifty cal bullet. I mean, yeah, that's why people just aren't taking
1: this one too seriously. Uh, Anna, your thoughts on the hipster gun?
0: Yeah, I know like literally zero about firearms, so (laughs) forgive anything I'm about to say. But if there was a
1: compass on one, are you suddenly in the market? Yeah,
0: I don't. You could
1: watch
2: a YouTube while while you're shooting it.
0: Yeah, I mean. uh, You know, Jeff's points about new market development, that that was my first thought because um, they keep referring to, like, how this gun is for hipsters. And, like, to me, I don't know, like, do hipsters carry guns? Like, all the hipsters I know carry, like, kombucha and wireless headphones. Like, they don't, they don't, like... If it was
2: going to carry a gun. Would it need to be like a musket or something like super oh, ironic. Yeah. I mean, well, and the, well, well the the
0: irony, on. the ironic part of this is, um, oh, good, thanks. Yeah,
1: no, nope, they're back. Just uh, keep building. Tell us about the irony, Anna. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can you hear me? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, t- so it, t- it was funny to me that it, it looks like the duck hunt gun from the original Nintendo. Really, like if you look at the picture of yeah. it, it's like very it's got sort of like these flashy neon sides. It's long and gray and looks plastic. I don't know um, so maybe that's that's how you target that group. But I don't know. The designer was quoted in the Moscow Times indicating that this gun would be a good way to involve the next generation in hunting. Mm-hmm. and I you know, yeah. i it was interesting, like Jeff pointed out that the the gun has a program that helps teach users how to shoot, but you know, he, he goes on to say that he wants people to own weapons responsibly and at the same time get a kick out of it. <laughs> so I guess that's one way. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, in case anyone's interested, I looked up uh, the average age of a rifle hunter in the U.S.,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that is 43, which seems old for caring about how cool your gun looks or if it can, like, play vinyl records or whatever. <laughs> or what?
1: It is. Uh, I mean, that's actually that's a real problem where there is just a – Severely declining interest in hunting uh, in spe- especially being in wisconsin we 're hearing about that a lot. You know the people that are still hunting great, more land for them to hunt, but uh, overall interest is dwindling um, also on the point of the hipster gun, like I guess i don 't know who it 's going to influence other than people that have an empty spot in their safe already. Uh, you know a gun enthusiast sees something like this and they 're like, "I need it um, but what has pushed some of the hipster friends that I have into buying guns was the pandemic. Like friends that I have that I would never think would own a gun now talk openly about, you know, owning <coughs> firearms. And I think that if anything pushed them into that, it was the current situation. You know, they didn't to shoot need, the virus huh?
0: to shoot the virus. <laughs>
1: yeah. To sh- well, no, it was basically like they don't need bells and whistles. They just watched Contagion a lot last March and started arming up. And it's crazy, but I had a neighbor, you know, re talk about we uh, are kind of similarly aligned on uh, gun ownership where we were. And then like a few months later, he's like, oh, yeah, let it come. Let it come because uh, we're ready. I'm just like, what's going on? He's like, oh, I got I got a safe now. I'm just like interesting, man. You know, And uh, so I think. I think that it's not going to be the type of gun that pushes people into gun ownership. I think it is going to be situational. And we're living among that situation right now where, you know, gun ownership is going up. And I think they've even had problems keeping them on the shelves, stocking ammunition, stuff like that, mm. uh, just because of the fear, you know, that sort of surrounded this entire situation, especially uh, at the onset of it. Well, one thing, 1300 bucks is not cheap. Yeah, I mean that's it's not a cheap shotgun. So
2: that's a you're lot of gigs. Make- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I worked a lot of gigs to get this new rifle or shotgun. <laughs> um, so that, that's the other thing. I mean, for if that's your
1: first exposure to a firearm, I mean that's that's an investment. So right. Uh, well, now we move on to the next segment. Uh, in case you missed it. And I want to go first because I feel like my story is the weakest out of the three, so I want to end a little stronger. <laughs> uh, Whatever we can do to make you feel better, David. Oh, it's going to take more than a hug, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> the, story, uh, the story this week is uh, cannabis is creating jobs faster than any other American industry. Uh, basically, the fifth annual Cannabis Industry Jobs Report came out this week, and it's prepared by Leafly. The report says that the cannabis industry now supports 321,000 full-time U.S. jobs, That's just in 37 states with legal, medical, or adult-use markets. The industry added 77,000 jobs in 2020, a 32% increase in year-over-year growth despite the pandemic. Cannabis is creating jobs now at a faster rate than any other industry. Now, when you think about 321,000 jobs, I understand that's not huge. Boeing and its subsidiaries alone have 143,000 employees. GM has one hundred and fifty-five thousand in twenty twenty, and General Electric had one hundred and seventy-four thousand. So it's not huge yet, but as the construction continues in the background, I want to say the opportunity of legal cannabis, as long as the trajectory towards legalization remains in course, on course, is undeniable. Anna, what did we miss this week?
0: Um one story that I thought was pretty interesting that kind of I think got flew under the radar a little bit is that uh Jaguar um Jaguar as they Jaguar. say in the commercial. Yeah. It you're Jaguar. the pronunciation authority. Yeah.
1: Yes, I believe it is Jaguar. Yeah. <laughs> when you draw the Jaguar. It's <laughs> oh, believe- like Mark
2: Strong, James Bond type <laughs> stuff there.
0: <laughs> um anyway, whatever this company is called. Uh they announced that they're going fully electric by 2025, um, which is interesting. I thought because Jaguar Land Rover is really the first automaker to make a super firm commitment to electrification on such a short timeframe. Um, you know, most automakers are investing big as we know, but we're definitely not seeing many of them commit exclusively to the technology. And those who are like GM and Bentley, um, have much longer timelines to achieve that designation. So in GM's case, they said that they'll phase out diesel and gas by 2035. So a full 10 years behind what Jaguar said they're doing. But of course, um, you know, GM has a much bigger portfolio to consider, but, uh, Jaguar Land Rover's business unit is also, um, committing to electric. So Land Rover as a separate part, right. But, Mm -hmm. um, and that's on a more staggered timeline consistent with what other automakers are doing. But, um, <clears throat> you know, Motor Trend says that Jaguar was essentially, quote, swatting a paw at Tesla. <laughs> but it's also That's worth cute. noting, I think, that the premium brand has been struggling in recent years. So the alternate theory is maybe, like, why not? Um, okay. Go big or go home, you know? Maybe it's a Hail Mary, but I like it. Uh, Jaguar has always kind of been known for its, mo- its like, weird almost commitment to quality, Like I once read that the valets um, that load the freshly finished vehicles onto the trains for transit, like they're not allowed to wear belts or buckles or even have like metal eyelets on their shoes to make sure that they don't scratch anything. So if Jaguar can bring this kind of attention to detail to new electric line, then maybe they can take on Tesla.
1: Jeff, your thoughts on uh, an electric Jaguar, the cannabis industry industry. Or let's just jump into your story. Whatever your pleasure.
2: Well, I think the cannabis thing, I think, is interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. it's that is great job growth. What well, I think is going to be interesting to see where those jobs end up being. Mm-hmm. If I had to guess, I'm going to say a lot of them right now are retail, which mm-hmm. great. Yeah. But if those can also if that can filter then into more production type jobs, um, higher paying type of jobs, yeah. I think that's going to be uh, an even greater boon. And as far as with Jaguar, I think this is interesting because I think it, it gives them more of a category. It, it gives them a, a more of a competitive category to be in. I think, you know, they can talk about swatting a pot, Tesla, but I think <laughs> really what they should be doing is trying to compete with Mercedes in a lot of electronic vehicles that they're, they're coming out with okay. um, and, and trying to uh, sort of jump on that train. But uh, I thought one of the cool things that caught my eye this week was um, affordable robots um, potentially making their way into the police force because the first thing I thought about was the iconic action film RoboCop. <laughs> I mean, who wasn't a fan of Officer Murphy? Murphy? Oh yeah. I just um, I just watched it recently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it, it did get a little um off key um, to like I think there's like four of them. So they, they Oh yeah, yeah. it, it even spawned like TI. It, <laughs> <laughs>
1: it
2: got yeah. kind of bad. But I mean in all seriousness, I think this is a great concept. If they can make these affordable in terms of going into dangerous areas, very similar to when we look at drones and things in a military environment. If we can help support our police force by sending in whether it's um um, Violence situations, hostage situations, whatever the case may be, even if it's just a dangerous environment with some known um, bad actors, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a, it's a positive thing. Anything we, anything we can do to keep law enforcement safe and uh, reduce their exposure to some dangerous environments is a positive thing. So I thought this was kind of a cool story to see. Now they're not going to put a gun on his hip or anything like that. Yeah. So this would be more about talking people down and assessing the situation more than anything else. But still, I I thought it was a cool story in a a positive direction for the technology.
1: I thought it was cool uh, as well because it definitely seemed like it was going to be taking more of an observe and report sort of task uh, or role. And most recently, what we saw with a lot of the riots is that it was with the riots that we saw, particularly in Madison and Milwaukee, is that there was sort of a keep it contained, make sure it doesn't escalate and then use all the footage to prosecute all the uh, the instigators. And uh, I thought something like this, you know, which just provides that much more audio and video that they use to sort of unwrap the situation and prosecute people going forward. That was just my sort of like thought when I read it. Uh, Finally, jumping into final thoughts. Uh, Anna, other than the noise that is so loud out here, I can't imagine you can hear anything in there. Uh, What are your final thoughts for this episode?
0: I don't have any final thoughts outside of what the noise is. It's, <laughs> <laughs> someone is hammering into my brain and it, I can't move on from it. I,
1: it sounds like they are just on the other side of your wall.
0: Just like jackhammering like at my feet. Yeah. yeah.
1: David, I think we should offer our readers the
2: opportunity to voice their thoughts on what could be creating this noise. Oh and yeah. And <laughs> in exchange for the best conspiracy theory, we offer them like a free old Grease t shirt or something.
1: Oh yeah. Oh man, I got a pile of softball t shirts. And uh man, actually we got drawers of IEN t shirts. So send us anything you got cooking and uh we'll get those out to you. Doug, send us your address. <laughs> 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 um my final thought is, you know, just again, uh the housekeeping that everybody hates to hear. Um please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. And if you want to email those zany, zany theories to us, email us at jeffanna or david at com with email the podcast in the subject line. Again, questions and comments, not pitches. I understand the PR profession, but my goodness. One last shout out. You know, we rag on NAS- NASA a lot for some of our stuff, but kudos to them, right? Oh, man.
2: Perseverance landed, no problems. Should be um, already some cool images coming back from that. So maybe we talk a little bit about
1: that next week, too. I think so. I just like being reinvigorated by the space industry because I find it exciting. Yeah.
0: Are you ragging on NASA?
1: I oh. have been critical of NASA once or twice. Right? The guy who has, on three different occasions, mentioned overblown government spending. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he has something to say about the yeah. outfit. Uh,
0: somebody didn't go to space camp and it shows.
1: Right. Um. All right. Well, thank you all for your time today. Uh, for Jeff, for Anna, I'm David Mancy, and this has been the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll catch you next week.